Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Thank you all for coming out on this balmy, balmy <laughs> November evening. I feel like I'm in Honolulu. For those watching online, it's a little bit cold out, just a touch. I know Dr. Cutterback has much to say this evening. I'm not going to cut you short, doctor, I promise. I will give you a full hour as you deserve and, uh, and, and as you like, okay? Please welcome back Dr. John Cutterback. Thank you. Thank you. One thing Deacon Sabatino did not mention that he left in California was a lot of hair. <laughs> I think a lot of people leave a lot of hair in California when they, when they leave there. Um, I remember well when the deacon first arrived as, a, as one of those older students that uh, was on fire. You could tell that something very special had happened uh, that brought him to Christendom. And that's a, it's a fabulous memory for me. And I praise God and I thank him. And it's, it's a great honor to be here working with you, deacon. All right. Well, thanks for coming out in the freezing, absolutely freezing weather. It's a, it's, it's a joy to be together. Well, I'm going to give a quick reminder of what we did last week and, uh, and then move into what we're doing this week. You all have your texts with you, right? I'm going to refer to it even more this time. We're going to have some fun. There's just some really fabulous texts that I'm going to want to look at with you. If anyone still needs one, you can raise your hand there. So we are looking at this great dialogue written by Plato about Socrates' trial called the Apology. The thing that we, that we particularly looked at last time, we wanted to see what we could learn from Socrates about what wisdom is. Not the truths so much that the wise man knows, but the, what Socrates means by wisdom and then particularly kind of the entree into it. So the, the big point from last time was, of course, the centrality of this rather enigmatic phrase that Socrates had said, I am wise inasmuch as I know how much I do not know. And we tried to get a sense of, of why Socrates had so much emphasized that. And again, the key point there was, in his experience, the main hindrance that he has found to people actually pursuing wisdom is they're not seeing clearly how much there is that they do not know and that they desperately need to know. So one way we tried to capture that last time was by saying, the problem is that we think we know enough. We don't have a sense of urgency that there are absolutely central questions that need to be answered that we do not have the answers for. Or another way of putting that is there are things that we were made to see 
made to understand. And we will only come to understand them through a disciplined, consistent effort. And so if we don't set forth on this path of making a disciplined, consistent effort to come to discover these things, we never will. So the first main thing he had to teach us, as one gentleman who was sitting right here last time pointed out, we could capture that in the term humility, but there's a lot that goes into that term. To see clearly where we stand and to have a very good sense of where we need to go. One way that this was also captured in the ancient world, but not by Socrates himself and not by his student Plato, but by Plato's great student Aristotle, a famous phrase of Aristotle's, or clause, I should say, of Aristotle's was, philosophy begins in wonder. Philosophy begins in wonder. This is Aristotle's way of capturing the same point. Before we go on to today's main topic, moving on from there, I just want to linger on that. And because last time I didn't get to share a couple, quickle, a couple of quick um, suggestions as to how we might act based upon those things that we saw, I'm going to make a couple of those suggestions, and then we'll go on to our topic for today. But just really quickly, Aristotle on wonder. His very beautiful notion of wonder fits is, is a nice sum up of what we saw last time. You might put it this way. What Aristotle means by wonder is this profoundly human experience where we see something, but then on seeing this truth, we see that there is much more to see. And we have this sense of... It always requires that we see something, but we see something that's so profound, we, 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 get, we get a corner of it, we get an edge of it, but we're able to see that there's a lot more that we haven't seen. Interestingly, he says also, it comes with a certain desire and also a certain fear. Seeing that there is that more there, we have this sense of, I want to see more. I need to see more. But there arises this kind of fear of, will I be able to do it? And all of that, I think, is wrapped into, again, that profoundly human moment of... It has this great kind of tension towards the future. What, what will we do? What will we do at that moment of wonder? It's a scary moment. As we noted last time, it hurts to see that we don't see. And so amazingly, shockingly, tragically, many of us, when we have one of those little moments of wonder, what do we do? We don't follow it through. We turn away. We actually don't follow the call. We maybe even seek distraction. We're not willing to do what needs to be done to go further because it's going to be hard. Again, wonder hurts, but it's this natural call within us towards great things. As Christians, we surely can say God designed us and designed the world around us and our experiences to draw forth from us wonder. How will we respond in that moment of wonder? Will we 
cultivate a sense of wonder. I wanted to throw out at you then a couple of really quick suggestions. Again, this is really more the wrap up of last time, but it's a nice lead into what we're doing today. How can we be a people that in the spirit of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle cultivate wonder in our lives? I warn my students, the culture, the civilization that we live in is a wonder crusher. It's a wonder crusher. Wonder presupposes, it, or it has a, this fundamental confidence behind it that there are great things to be discovered if we look. Does our culture have that confidence that you can know the higher truths and that it is worth cultivating and focusing on? We live rather in a culture that cultivates distraction. Distraction that turns us away from wonder. So I throw the challenge at you. How can we try to set up our lives to cultivate in ourselves, to cultivate in our friends, to cultivate in our family, in our households, a spirit of wonder? This is a major way that we can set forth on the path towards wisdom, set forth on, into philosophy, that love of wisdom, by thinking in terms of how can we cultivate wonder. A couple of quick suggestions. Isn't it clear that God has designed the natural world to call forth our wonder? And I just, I, I, I want to suggest we need to recapture that. This is a whole topic in itself. I'd like to throw out at you. I am convinced that there is something very diabolical afoot in the way that our society looks at the natural world. And again, this is a whole other topic. I'm not in any way intending to condemn all of modern science by this. I'm not at all. But there is a part of modern science that seems bent upon taking the wonder out of it. Oh, well, that's just such and such. That's just such and such. That's just the fruit of billions of chance interactions where then such and such comes about. No, it's not. Nature is not the fruit of chance. It is philosophically absurd, philosophically absurd, to think that the order of the natural world comes about by chance. It's even more absurd to think that the beautiful order of the human world, meaning when we enter in our own moral actions, comes about by chance. The natural world is screaming to us that there is so much more behind it that needs to be discovered. So my first suggestion is we need to rediscover the natural world is speaking to us. Are we listening? And being called towards the truths that it has to point to. So secondly, be people of, re of reading. Be a more literate people of reading and studying. Studying. Are we taking the steps that are right there before us of reading great texts, of reading great literature, reading great works of philosophy, of theology. There's so much there that will help draw us in, will help take us further along that path. Are we doing that ourselves? Are we encouraging our family? Are we encouraging our friends to do that? And then finally, making our homes be places of rich discussion. Are our homes places where we are living the conviction that through good discussion, we can and will discover amazing things. Do we literally sit down 
to the dinner table with a sense of something wonderful might happen right here. If we spend some time here and maybe purposely raise great questions or just allow them to rise by themselves, are we making our homes around the dinner table, around the fireplace, places of discussion of profound things, especially for the sake of the children? So often I think that we adults can make the mistake in dealing with children because we're actually dealing with an insecurity of our own. We think it's a problem if we don't already have all the answers. As we've learned from Socrates last time, the problem is not not having all the answers. The problem is not realizing that we don't have all the answers and that the only way to find them is by continuing to look. And so think what a difference it would make particularly with the young if we had the, a response to them when they come to us with questions, and I, and I stand condemned by what I'm about to say to you, it's such a profoundly important moment in a child's life when a child comes particularly to a parent, but to any adult, and says, what about such and such? And ask this, what truly is an amazing question. And isn't it shocking how often we don't even have time? Oh, we're so busy. We don't have time to stop and say, that question you and I could spend our lives talking about. I'm so glad you asked. I present for your consideration, if children get that kind of response, they're going to grow up to be very different adults than most of our young people are growing up to be. So we can cultivate in ourselves, and cultivating those around us, especially in our households, a spirit of wonder. I go on to now our topic for today, which is really the second step or the second part of wisdom. The first step, the first key step, the first key part, because it really is part of being wise, and that's why Socrates said it. I am wiser than these others to this extent, that I know how much I don't know. That is a real wisdom. But it's what I want to call the first step. It's kind of a negative wisdom. Not negative meaning bad, but negative in the, in the sense of it's not so much knowing positive things. It's more realizing, well, what you don't know. The key thing that we need to also see here, and this is why today's is really the key follow-up, is ultimately it is all about the higher things that we can come to see. This is not just about raising questions for the sake of raising questions. That is a common misinterpretation of Socrates. It is ultimately about the higher truths that you can come to see. And what I want to do is look at the text with you. What are the, we'll say, positive truths that Socrates wants to teach here? He, the things he most explicitly says about wisdom is that kind of negative first part. To be wise is to know how little you know. We have to look a little bit more carefully, but it's right there. He is sharing his positive wisdom here also with us. And I have three points, and that's it. And they will be this. First is the hierarchy of goods, or what I'll call the primacy of virtue. The hierarchy of goods, as he's going to share with us, or the primacy of virtue. Our second point will be confidence in the power of goodness. Socrates shows an amazing confidence in the power of goodness. And I'd even almost be willing to go as far as to say divine providence. And this is going to fit in very nicely with our wrapping up the year of faith here today. 
And then the final point is the central importance of good conversation. The central importance of good conversation as leading us towards happiness and also as being constitutive of human happiness. This is a wisdom. To see, again, the central importance of good conversation. So, let's jump in, get down to business. Remember to be thinking, holding your questions, and we'll do all we can to get uh, to them at the end. I am going to bring you to the marginal number 29, which is on page 34. At this point, in Socrates' defense, he is making his defense specifically against the accusation of impiety. Remember, he was accused of corrupting the youth, and he was accused of being impious, impious. And the main approach he takes to respond to that accusation was that we talked about, remember, the oracle of Delphi, who had called him the wisest. So he took this as a mission that he had to go out and test and see whether that was true. So he is saying, look, I was actually being pious to the oracle of Delphi in going and testing what was said and thereby living the life of a philosopher. So he says at 28E, at the top of page 34, right before the 29 there, when the God ordered me, as I thought and believed, to live the life of a philosopher. So he claims that this it was actually a very pious thing for him to do. He set forth to live the life of a philosopher. And now what he's going to do is explain what the philosopher's mission is. And he's going to give us a, a fabulous example of precisely what he would do and go around and say. And so I am further down on page 34 now, right about at the D. Now, here's the neat thing. This is at that point where he was explaining, I would not even accept it if you all offered to me to acquit me if I would stop doing what I'm doing because I've been called by the God to do this, to live the life of philosophy. And this is what he says here. I'm again, right at the D. I say, if you were to quit me on those terms, I would say to you, gentlemen of the jury, I am grateful and I am your friend. But I will obey the God rather than you. And as long as I draw breath and am able, I shall not cease to practice philosophy, to exhort you, and in my usual way to point out to any one of you whom I happen to meet. Now he's giving a, a sample quotation of what he says to people. Good sir, you are an Athenian, a citizen of the greatest city with the greatest reputation for both wisdom and power. Are you not ashamed of your eagerness to possess as much wealth, reputation, and honors as possible, while you do not care for nor give thought to wisdom or truth or the best possible state of your soul? Then if one of you disputes this and says he does care, I shall not let him go at once or leave him, but I shall question him, examine him, and test him. And if I do not think he has attained the goodness that he says he has, I shall reproach him. Pause. We'll come back to that moment. I love this text. I, I like to take it as kind of an example of, of evangelization. Here he is explaining what he did living the life of a philosopher. What is he going around teaching? This is more than just teaching people how little they know. He is teaching here something very specific. There is a hierarchy of goods, and he is asking people whether they live by it. And watch again how he does this. I like for the sake of our, 
our own reflection here, just substituting, there's a lot of interesting parallels between the city of Athens and America. This might just be interesting. I'm just going to read those few lines again. I'm going to substitute in the word American. And I'm just going to picture, have you picture Socrates saying this. Let's not, let's not picture him saying it to our neighbor. Let's picture him saying it to us. Good sir, you're an American, citizen of the greatest city with the greatest reputation for both wisdom and power. Are you not ashamed of your eagerness to possess as much wealth, reputation, and honors as possible, while you do not care for nor give thoughts to wisdom or truth or the best possible state of your soul? Now, note with the next move that he makes. It's fascinating. I picture, what if he did that on, a, on the street corner and kind of said to people, why are you putting wealth first? Why are you putting reputation and honors first? Wouldn't a lot of us say, oh, I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't do that. If we're asked, if we're asked the question, what do you think is most important in life? I present for your consideration, the vast majority of people in our culture would probably actually give a fairly reasonable answer to that. If you're asked the question, what do you think is most important? I find it hard to believe that that many people are going to say, hmm, let me think about that. Um, yeah, bodily pleasures and money. Yep, that's it. Bodily pleasures and money. That, that's what I think is most important. How many people would say that? Socrates is aware that many people, it's almost like asking someone, well, do, do you believe in God, or do you think God is important? A lot of people will say, well, if, well sure. Look at Socrates' follow-up. He's a man who's been around the block a couple times. Then if one disputes this and says he does care, I shall not let him go at once or leave him. He doesn't say, oh, you do think God's most important? I'm sorry to have bothered you. Rather, he says, I shall question him, examine him, and test him, and if I do not think he has attained the goodness that he says he has, I shall reproach him because, are you ready for this line? He attaches little importance to the most important things and greater importance to inferior things. I don't think I can think of a better line to capture an examination of conscience, or a line to live by. Do we live as though? Note, note how he thought. Now I'm not asking you anymore what you think is the most important thing. Now I'm asking you this, he's saying. Do you live as though what is most important is most important? Or do you live as though inferior things are the more important things? It's not just, I mean, talk about a wise line. This is a man who has a profound sense of the hierarchy of goods. There is a hierarchy of goods. You can know what they are. And it is your obligation to live according to it. That, I give you, ladies and gentlemen, is his first key positive point about wisdom. There is a hierarchy of goods you can know what that hierarchy of goods is, and you have an obligation as a human being to live according to it. And if we are not, 
we are failing fundamentally as human beings. There's a philosopher in action. I take you a little further. He goes on, I shall treat in this way anyone I happen to meet, young and old, citizen, stranger, more so the citizens because you are more kindred to me. Be sure that this is what the God orders me to do, and I think there's no greater blessing for the city than my service to the God. For I go around doing nothing but persuading both young and old. And again, note how he, what he keeps coming back to in expressing this hierarchy. I go around doing nothing but persuading both young and old among you not to care, isn't this amazing, for your body or your wealth. Does he know our culture? Not to care for your body or your wealth in preference to or even as strongly as for the best possible state of your soul. As I say to you, and then he gives a quote of what he has clearly said before, wealth does not bring about excellence. You need to know this. The word that's being translated from the Greek as excellence there is the word for virtue. So I'm going to substitute in the word virtue. Otherwise, we'll be missing what he's saying. Wealth does not bring about virtue, but virtue makes wealth and everything else good for men. Now, that is the zinger right there. Not only has he said that virtue should be the most important thing in our life, he's gone further. Not only should we value it more, it should be the principle of order in everything that we do. Listen again to what he said. Wealth does not bring about excellence. No, a parallel has, I don't want to take it too far, a parallel has often been pointed out between Socrates and our Lord. When our, our Lord went after certain things consistently, didn't he? And one of the things he went after, at times it's a little uncomfortable, he went after wealth in the sense of our attachment to it in the ongoing consistent temptation we have to treat it as more important than it is. He used very dramatic words. We're not going to go to his words. Right now we're looking at Socrates. He chose his examples carefully. Wealth does not bring about excellence, virtue. In other words, wealth, ladies and gentlemen, does not make us happy. But virtue makes wealth and everything else good for men. Think what he's saying there. If wealth does ever bring us any happiness, it is only in the context of our being virtuous. If we are not being virtuous, wealth will be an unmitigated curse. But when we put virtue first, then wealth can have its place. Anything else can have its place. So this hierarchy, wealth, virtue, comes first in our life and further is to be the principle of order for everything else. We judge everything in terms of virtue. And if we put it first, everything else will be in its place. Does that sound like a biblical line that you've ever heard of? Seek first. First, the kingdom of God and everything else. This is exactly on a natural level what Socrates just said. Seek first virtue, true moral excellence, dignity, and nobility of character, and everything else in your life will be in order. Let's go on to our second point. Confidence in the power of goodness. 
I'm now on page 35 still. And I'm actually going to pick up right after where we just were. I'm going to go ahead and read these few lines out loud to you. It is in the 30B, a few lines before the C, the beginning of the second paragraph, the first paragraph that begins on page 35. Now, if by saying this, by saying this, these things we just read, I corrupt the young, this advice must be harmful. But if anyone says that I give different advice, he is talking nonsense. On this point, I would say to you, gentlemen of the jury, whether you believe in Nietzsche or not, whether you acquit me or not, do so on the understanding that this is my course of action, even if I am to face death many times. Do not create a disturbance, gentlemen. Anytime it says that, that means at that point the jury just, just went into an uproar at what he just said. Do not create a disturbance, gentlemen, but abide by my request not to cry out at what I say, but to listen. For I think it will be to your advantage to listen. And I'm about to say other things at which you will perhaps cry out. By no means do this. Be sure that if you kill the sort of man I say I am, you will not harm me more than yourselves. Neither Miletus nor Anetus can harm me in any way. He could not harm me, for I do not think it's permitted that a better man be harmed by a worse. Was that a lack of humility? I don't think so. Part of humility is to understand where, where you are. He is a better man, and he knows he is. And look at his absolute confidence here. Neither Miletus nor Nidus can harm me in any way. He could not harm me, for I do not think it's permitted that a better man be harmed by a worse. Certainly he might kill me, perhaps banish or disenfranchise me, disfranchise me, which he and maybe others think to be great harm, but I do not think so. As a gentleman, I want to quote to you something from the great St. Augustine, one of the great four Western fathers of the church. One way that he said to judge the importance of things, this might strike you as strange, you probably haven't heard this before. He says, things that you can lose against your will, things that you can lose against your will are not that important. Wait, did I say that right or did I say that backwards? Did I say that right? Thank you. Things that you can lose against your will, thank you, I did say it right, are not that important. The most important things you cannot lose against your will. In other words, as long as your will remains good, these things cannot be taken away from you. In other words, your great treasure is your character. And that cannot be taken away from you. This was St. Augustine in his own way making the same point of, you have absolutely nothing to fear, for the most important things can never be taken away from you against your will. You might, you might give them up. We can give up things by choosing wrongly, by giving up our moral character. But as long as we retain a good will, what's most important can never be taken away from us. Look at this amazing conviction that Socrates has. These people truly cannot hurt me. There's another great one here. Page 44 at 41D. 
So this is near the top of page 44. This is the last page. We're going to come back to it again here. You too, I'm in the paragraph that begins right before the D there, 41D on page 44. You too must be of good hope as regards death, gentlemen of the jury, and keep this one truth in mind, that a good man cannot be harmed either in life or in death, and that his affairs are not neglected by the gods. Ladies and gentlemen, what an astounding faith. I'm going to use the word there, faith, that Socrates has from his experience of life that the man, the woman of virtue can never be hurt. Look how this follows upon the first point. You put virtue first, everything else is in its place. Virtue can never be taken from you. Anything that can be taken away from you is not that important. Okay, not St. Augustine's point. Anything that can be taken away from you is not that important. Here Socrates saying, they can't even hurt me. Isn't that an amazing confidence in how goodness rules everything? And the amazing nobility and strength of moral character. This is something that is in our, fundamentally, our control. As Christians are going to say, by the grace of God, he has put it in our control. If we live virtue, putting it first, absolutely nothing can hurt us. Absolutely nothing can hurt us. This just brings to mind, it is always the case. Reality is always better than we thought it was. Reality always is better than we thought it was. Things are really that good. But if we put first things first, nothing can go wrong. Socrates lived that conviction, and he died with that conviction. Here is we're ending the year of faith together. What an amazing conviction for us to bring before the world around us, as Socrates did. We have nothing to fear when we put first things first. When we live as though virtue is the meaning of life, nothing can or will go wrong. That doesn't mean that there won't be suffering. But fundamentally, nothing can go wrong. And now we come to our third point. Conversation as being at the heart of the good life. One of the most famous lines from this great dialogue is on page 41. This is at the number 38. Right before the 38, I'm going to start to read. Perhaps someone might say, but Socrates... If you leave us, will you not be able to live quietly without talking? Now, this is the most difficult point on which to convince some of you. If I say that it's impossible for me to keep quiet because that means disobeying the God, you will not believe me and will think I'm being ironical. On the other hand, if I say that, here's the really famous lines, it's the greatest good for a man to discuss virtue every day and those other things about which you hear me conversing and testing myself and others, 
for the unexamined life is not worth living for man, you will believe me even less. Let's just turn these great lines before our mind for just a moment here. It is the greatest good for a man to discuss virtue every day and those other things about which you hear me conversing and testing myself and others. Could we say those words? Socrates thought that he was most alive in doing what was most important as a human being. When he was with people, that he could raise these absolutely most fundamental questions with and move towards an answer with confidence. Maybe we won't get it fully, maybe not today, but this is what we do together. He spends his days discussing virtue and other such things. An example comes, comes to my mind. If a husband and a wife don't spend fundamentally, dare I say, their best time together doing exactly what Socrates just said, then what is our life together? Will we ever be able to be craftsmen of virtue in our own lives? Will we ever achieve that extremely beautiful and arduous good of actually succeeding in putting virtue first and arranging our lives around virtue? Will we ever figure out how to do that if our basic vents each day is not with our most important people. And again, I'm thinking particularly in the household, particularly in a special way between spouses, between friends. In a sense, ladies and gentlemen, what else is there if we're not doing that? And he goes on and says, for the unexamined life is not worth living for man. Now, that, that line absolutely can be misunderstood. And again, I'd say the kind of common, a common misunderstanding of Aristotle is, pardon me, of Socrates is just, the key is, in any case, be asking questions. At least be self-reflective. The great evil would be not to asking any questions. Well, I mean, again, there's a great truth to that. Socrates is saying that. But self-questioning, questioning of others, what he's calling here examination, is definitively for Socrates, not the end in itself. The point is, the reason unexamined life is not worth living is because unless we have that intense, disciplined, ongoing examination through great conversation of which he's speaking, we never will see the great truths and we never will incarnate them in our lives. But it seems, has he not captured something profoundly practical? by saying, this is where it really happens. Not as though virtue is in just talking about it. It's not just theoretical conversations. And again, that's why I keep coming back in my mind to the household, when in any case in my own experience, I'm happy to say by the grace of God, is the example most burned into my own memory of two people who love one another, who have a great weight upon them, and have a great need right now to discuss what is virtue 
And how do we bring it about? And this is not a simply theoretical conversation. This is because people's lives are at stake if we don't figure this out. Indeed, the unexamined life is not worth living. Some things are worth discussing every day. I'm at page 43 at the number 41. And moving towards our wrap-up here, here, what, how is a man like Socrates without the faith to picture heaven? Watch what he's about to do. He, he cannot, without, one thing is sure, without supernatural revelation, there's no way of knowing what would be on the other side of death. Can you imagine what it would have been like to have all these convictions that Socrates does? Knowing that virtue is most important, knowing the incredible beauty of human moral character, knowing there are great truths still to know that he knows he'll never come to know in this life, in not knowing what it will be like after death. But he still has an astounding confidence that it must be amazing. Because here is a man who's been so attentive to everything that's gone around in the world in his life, and though he's seen great suffering and great injustice, he has absolute confidence. Once again, things are always better than we've realized. Whatever comes next must be astounding. And look at how he expresses it. I'm right at the 41. If anyone arriving in Hades, it was impolite to say hell, so he said Hades. That was a joke. If anyone arriving in Hades will have escaped from those who call themselves judges here and will find those true judges who are said to sit in judgment there, Minos and Rhadamanthus, Aquus, Triptolemus, and the other demigods who have been brought up, pardon me, been upright in their own life, would that be a poor kind of change? Again, what would one of you give to keep company with Orpheus and Museus, Hesiod and Homer? I am willing to die many times if that is true. It would be a wonderful way for me to spend my time whenever I met Palamides and Ajax, the son of Telamon, and any other of the men of old who died through an unjust conviction, to compare my experience with theirs, I think it would be pleasant. Most important, I could spend my time testing and examining people there as I do here, as to who among them is wise and who thinks he is, but is not. What would one not give, gentlemen of the jury, for the opportunity to examine the man who led the great expedition against Troy or Odysseus or Sisyphus and innumerable other men and women one could mention? And here's my favorite line. It would be an extraordinary happiness to talk with them, to keep company with them, and examine them. Picture again the noble pagan trying to picture the next life. Has he done poorly, ladies and gentlemen, by realizing what could be better than to be with the wise and to be able together to continue to try to see more clearly the most important truths, to continue those great conversations that were begun here. From a natural viewpoint, 
Is that not a beautiful expression of what heaven would be? Isn't it amazing as Christians what we have? It's one of the reasons I love studying philosophy is I keep asking myself the question, what would Socrates think? <laughs> what would Socrates think if he could just know what we know? And I, and I hope to God, and I think it's a fair hope, that now Socrates does know. It seems to me in God's great providence, he's a man that deserved to see what was there to be seen. But isn't it, he couldn't, of course, for instance, have had conversations with people in the next life the way that you and I, ladies and gentlemen, right now today can have conversations with people in the next life. Isn't that amazing? I just want to mention real quickly, um, my father passed away two months ago, and he, just about a year ago, he was, he was with me in this very building and had come a number of times to some of these great events my mother would come to, and I, she's watching right now. And it is such a joy as a Christian to think, he, he refers to the heroes of old that he hopes to meet one day. Isn't it astounding as Christians to know that not even just heroes of old, but heroes of much closer that you can have confidence and hope in God's great providence that we can still have conversations with about the most important things, even right now, though they're not face-to-face, only to be fulfilled in the conversations that will be face-to-face. I just want to wrap up again by just coming back to this great line The unexamined life is not worth living. Why, for Socrates, is the unexamined life not worth living? Because this examination of what he, of which he speaks here, this disciplined, this unselfish, this loving pursuit of higher things, done rightly, always succeeds. In God's great providence, he who looks with courage and perseverance always finds. And Socrates knew that. The unexamined life is not worth living, he said, for he knew that the truly examined life is worth living. That he who puts first things first ultimately will find them. And of course, isn't it great we as Christians have faith and we pray for greater faith, that we might live our conviction. What if we were to live our convictions as Socrates lived his convictions? He lived in the faith and in the hope that his examination would come to the fruition of those great unending conversations. May we do the same. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Cutterback. Mm-hmm. One gentleman asked me on, on the way in, what was it like taking a class with Dr. Cutterback? And I, I would say that it was um, probably one of the most profoundly life-changing experiences I have ever had. I know you, you mentioned that your mother is watching. We're very blessed to have Mrs. Cutterback watching this evening, and I would uh, just venture to say that I, I think your dad is also watching with us this evening.
All right, I know you have some questions, and uh, let's find our seats for those standing in the back. For those watching online, we don't do question and answer standing, so sit down. Okay. The same rules apply to all, whether you're watching online or you're here in the room. The question has to do with the subject at hand. The question is one sentence long. On the end of your sentence, there is a question mark, and don't take my microphone away from me. I will hold it for you so that we can get a good question. Uh, and those watching online, please make sure your question is one sentence long, but also add where you're writing in from. We'd appreciate that. Dr. Cudabeck, on the bottom of page 44, the handout, at all previous times, my usual mantic sign frequently opposed me, even in small matters. What is Socrates, what's he talking about there? Um, is it on the bottom of page 44? 42. <laughs> details, details. Um, very good question. This is something that he refers to several times that is something that to us Christians looks very guardian angel-like. He refers to it as a kind of divine sign that he would have throughout his life. He notes it would never tell him to do certain things positively, but it would warn him not to do certain things. And so he makes no specific claim. He, he doesn't give us a lot of details of it, but it would be a, a semi-divine kind of being that was helping him. And so, again, it has much in common with the guardian angel, and he was convinced that it was a way that he was being helped. And, in fact, I'm going to read from the top of page 44. It just fits with that. You two must have been, I already read this line, but I'm going to read one line after it. You two must be of good hope as regards death, gentlemen of the jury, and keep this one truth in mind, that a good man cannot be harmed either in life or in death. I'm right at the D on page 44. And that his affairs are not neglected by the gods. What has happened to me now has not happened of itself, but it is clear to me that it was better for me to die now and to escape from trouble. That is why my divine sign did not oppose me at any point. Again, he's making refer to that same thing, saying that were this to be something bad, that this divine-ish being that helps me would have indicated that to me. So we can't say any further exactly what he thinks that it is, but I mean, isn't, isn't it interesting to know that it's, it's part of his confidence that all things worked, I, I like to make it kind of biblical, all things work together unto the good of those that love and serve God. He has that confidence that, it's, that things are well arranged, things are well arranged for the good. He doesn't, as clearly as Aristotle, have one God that is the root of everything. Aristotle clearly has that. Socrates doesn't, that there's, there are good gods that the gods ultimately are helping, that things are well arranged, that much is clear in Socrates. But it's not, I mean, it's not going to be until his, as were, grandson as a student. Aristotle is going to have it be very clearly one god. Did they believe as a whole in the afterlife or like something like heaven, or was this something that Socrates just spoke about? It was commonly held that there would be an afterlife, although there was certainly no definitive view on this. There would be many different views. When he refers there to Hades, this was the name of the place that, that the dead souls were thought to go. If, if you read Homer, who would, have been who would have written centuries before this, 
There's you might you might recall in the Iliad and the Odyssey, and when someone dies, their their souls are whisked away to the place of the dead. I mean, in, in general, it tended to be shrouded in legend, myth, so they didn't have a clear sense of it. But this is often referred to. There is a great tradition of thought here where there is a place where justice, further justice will be done. The good will be rewarded, the evil will be punished. Again, there wasn't any clarity on it, but there tended to be among the wise, there tended to be at least that conviction that uh, that ultimate justice would be done there. But you will find very different views. I'm trying to figure out why they actually condemned him to death. And it could be they were just uncomfortable with what he was saying. But also he alludes several times to false testimony against him. And I wonder if, we, if, if there's more and you know anything about that. Well, we, we don't. There's no way of saying for sure exactly what happened. This text is the main, is the main witness to it. So he refers to the text to things that were said, and he, and he actually rehearses some of those things that were said against him. One of them was, for instance, he says, I've been falsely accused of taking money for the teaching. Right? And there's, there's, there's various things like that of having corrupted the youth. So it's, it, it, it's, it remains, I'd say, somewhat, in any case, mysterious to me. Again, there's, there's different theories about it. It's pretty clear that there were powerful people that wanted to get rid of him. And so it was kind of a classic situation where it wasn't so much going to come down to the testimony. I mean, one thing I think this text is, is, is making clear is that anyone who had eyes to see would see that this man is, has not been corrupting the youth. Now, the impiety thing is a little bit more tricky because it is true that he does hold views that are not simply conventional about the gods. There are some things he holds there that are a little bit different. So there it, it is, okay, so was there a more traditional old school view of the gods that he has offended? Yeah, there can be some truth to that. So it, it, it's a couple of thoughts there for you. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot going on there. There's a question coming in from Michigan from our ICC satellite group. You know, you guys got to send us a picture of you, like, gathered around your computer or something. We want to see who you are. Okay, from, from Michigan. How do you think Socrates would have benefited or taught differently had he had the benefit of Christ's life and teachings? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, my own thought is that, I mean, again, it's, it's, such, it's a funny thing to think about. Christ came to the Jews. He was a Jew. He was coming in a very specific context, so it would be a little bit unfair for me to simply say, well, had, had Socrates been there in the Holy Land at the time, but nonetheless, just brushing over that, and then he, that he wasn't a Jew, and so it's not so much something that's easy to think about. I appreciate the question because what it's what it can allow us to focus on is the kind of insights that he had were ones that natural reason can see. And the truths of the faith are a perfect fulfillment of what reason can see. God, as St. Thomas Aquinas would say, has given us two great lights, the light of natural reason and the light of faith. And the light of faith just shines brighter and deeper. And so it takes us further in seeing along the same lines, but further than the light of the natural light of reason ever would have taken us. A, a great example, I think, here again is this one of how he, Socrates has such a profound sense that, that the human person comes to fulfillment in seeing the truth together with those that we love. 
Socrates, I'm convinced, would have thrilled to our Lord's speaking to his apostles, calling them friends, and saying to them, I have called you friends because all that I've heard from the Father, I have shared with you. I mean, imagine Socrates saying, you mean God himself is going to speak to us of the deepest things? I think that Socrates would have sat at the feet of our Lord in wonder. Uh, how have Plato and Aristotle carried these thoughts about the pursuit of wisdom further? A great question. How they have carried them further, and um, I mean, already even I referred a little bit at the beginning to Aristotle's notion of wonder is already a further development. The main way I said I've carried them further is Aristotle has developed a whole understanding of, I'm going to use a word that now is used by us a little differently, science. Science in the traditional sense of an ordered body of knowledge that we have certain knowledge of. And so in pursuing wisdom, we seek sciences, and there's a certain hierarchy of the sciences. This is something Aristotle has a much fuller understanding and a much fuller expression of than Socrates did. Aristotle has, for instance, the great science of metaphysics, which he calls the science of wisdom. Metaphysics proves the existence of God and tells us certain things about God. This is further. Socrates did not have very much metaphysics. His main emphasis was an ethical teaching. And so particularly Aristotle has gone further in having metaphysics and other sciences and even then in ethics also. Aristotle's ethics is a much fuller understanding than Socrates had in giving you all the different principles of the science and how things fit together. It fits with what Socrates did but it is, again, just as you said, a more highly developed, say, particularly through developing the sciences more fully. Thank you very much, Dr. Cutter. You're very well. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us. <laughs>